Well, good morning, everybody. Have you ever binge read a book? I know you've probably binge read, watched TV shows, and I won't make a show of hands of who's done that, not a confessional here. Won't make you say what shows you binge watch, but since you're all good church people, you probably, the, the Chosen is probably what you binge watch. That's the only one. But have you ever binged read a book? Probably not the book of Leviticus, not exactly a page turner, but about a year ago, I got locked into a book that I just could not put down. It was called Where the Light Fell by Philip Yancey. If you're not familiar with Yancey's work, he's arguably one of the most beloved authors, Christian authors in my lifetime. He's written books like What's So Amazing About Grace and The Jesus I Never Knew, uh, books uh, like The Bible Jesus Read on the Old Testament. And this is his memoir. It's kind of a prequel to the other books that he has written. And in this book, he tells a story that has striking parallels to our day and age. Growing up when the polio vaccine was coming out, growing up amidst the civil rights movement and so much segregation, and growing up in the midst of a family conflicted by faith. Along the way, and the thrust of the, of the story is about Philip and his older brother, Marshall. Marshall's really the prodigy of the family. Everybody thinks he's going to do all these amazing things. And Philip is kind of in his shadow. One of the neat things, this is a picture of Tony Evans. And Tony is a beloved pastor and speaker and writer. And Philip actually went to church with, with Tony in the, outside of Atlanta. Tony was a Bible student at Carver uh, Bible Institute at the time. He's now gone to write many books. He's the Dallas Cowboys chaplain. And if you know, he, he's a professional sports chaplain. And he, he must be really in, in brilliant and <laughs> strikingly good looking. No. Humble, right? But while I was fascinated to see these two just great kind of Christian figures and leaders being at church at the same time, Tony was older than Philip. Philip was a teenager at the time. The story has a pretty sad ending. Tony was coming to this predominantly and almost exclusively white church and wanted to become a member in there in the late 1960s. And even though he went on to be this powerful pastor and leader and writer, he was denied membership. And I bet you can guess why. And as Philip and his brother kind of graduate from high school and go on to college, the prodigy brother starts to turn into the prodigal son. Before Philip's brother Marshall graduates from a Christian college, he ends up heading into the countercultural movement, of the, the hippie movement in Atlanta. And suddenly, these, these brothers on great kind of tracks of faith start to find themselves at an impasse. One drifts, one kind of goes on the straight and narrow, and it causes estrangement and pain. And faith, which should be a bridge to unite families, members together, kind of becomes a wedge, dividing and separating people that we care most about. I couldn't put the book down because of not only how it spoke to our situation, not only to how it speaks to the church situation, but even in, in some ways to, to situations I know of those I love and in some ways my own family. 
At times, uh, I read it in about 24 hours. So I'm sitting there reading this book, and I'm watching my kids, and they're like, Dad, can we have ice cream? It's like 9.30. I'm like, yeah, sure. Can we like binge watch Toy Story? Sure. I couldn't put it down because I felt like this was a message that we needed to hear so much. But I also was lamenting. Because how can families be so close and then suddenly drift so far apart? And I believe... The story of these two brothers and this family is not just a story that goes back to our, to our day or to the 1960s, but it goes all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis 4, between two brothers who seem like they're on parallel tracks, and then tragedy happens. As I share this, you might be thinking of some of the messes within your own family, some of the things that you lament and wish were different. And even though... Cain and Abel's story is a tragic one. I believe there's still hope and redemption to be found within it. So if you're new or visiting with us, I'm Dave. I'm thrilled that you're here. We're in week three of a year-long series we're calling the With God Journey. Through the Bible, through the year, ultimately to get the message through us. And we've been discovering that what holds together Genesis to Revelation is this idea of the with God life, that God is pursuing a life with us. Last week we saw that Adam and Eve traded a with God life for a without God life. And we want to grasp things for ourselves instead of surrendering and trusting God. And now as we turn to Genesis 4, we start to see what happens when we choose to live a without God life instead of a with God life. And the thing I hope we understand today is that a with God life necessitates a with others life. It's not just me and God and everything's good, but a good with God life is going to lead to living the right kind of life with others. And if you want to live the right kind of with others life, you actually need to be living a with God life as well. They're inseparable. And I believe we're given the greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength first, because if we're not living that with God life well, we're not going to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I've never preached the story of Cain and Abel before because it's tragic. In many ways, it's, it's sad. It doesn't leave you with a great feeling. But I believe God has spoken something to my heart that convicted me that I believe is something we all need to hear. There's an invitation for us to listen to God, to ourselves, and to others in a new way through this ancient story. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. Genesis 4. 1 to 16. I'll be reading from the NIV version. If you would, if you're able, please stand as we hear God's word today. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching 
at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word from Genesis. You may be seated. So it starts off, Adam and Eve become pregnant and give birth to Cain in the original Hebrew. Uh, this translates as the bird and the bees kind of talk right there in verse 1. Sorry about that, parents, if uh, you know, younger ones in here. But we see two brothers that are both born. One is a shepherd. One works the ground. And we're not given a lot of backstory about this offering that they are to make to the Lord. Somehow it seems like God has called them to live this with God life. And here is one of the ways we can do that, an expression of our love, an expression of, of, of our withness together. Do this as a way of following me, of walking with me. And for whatever reason, Cain's offering is not seen with favor in God's eyes, while Abel's is. And this has always kind of bugged me. I mean, it seems like, isn't God being a little too harsh for Cain? I mean, we're told in, in the Bible, like in the book of James, not to show favoritism. Is God showing favoritism here to, to, Cain, or to Abel and not to Cain? Well, we're not told why exactly one offering was better. I think what we can learn here is that Abel's offering was likely accepted in contrast to Cain's, not because of the gift, but because of the heart of the giver. And we can see for Cain... Perhaps he wasn't giving and, and, and being with God in the right spirit because he reacts so defensively with so much anger. And oftentimes we're not doing things humbly and we're doing them with pride and arrogance. And that's a snare that grips us, as we'll see, is going to be a huge part of this story, being gripped by the snare of pride. We, when that happens and we get crossed or we get challenged, we can often really overreact, as we're going to see Cain doing here. So perhaps his heart wasn't in the right place. The New Testament book of Hebrews gives a little bit of commentary on this scene. In Hebrews 11.4, it says this, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commanded, uh, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. So faith is ultimately about trust and counting and relying on God. And if Abel, by faith, gave the better offering, then it seems like in some way he was trusting God, while perhaps Cain was trusting himself. Perhaps Abel gave first and best when it came to his offering. And perhaps Cain was giving last and least and leftover. 
And so when it comes to the resources God has entrusted us, our time, our talent, our treasures, I think we can learn from, from Abel giving best and, and first, not last and leftover. It's a way that shows we are living a life of trust, a with God life. But what happens after that? How does Cain respond? Well, verse 5 tells us he was very angry. I love this translation from, it's called the First Testament by a Hebrew and an Old Testament scholar, John Golden Gate. He puts it this way. Cain responded by making, this made Cain very angry, and he went on and into a huff. He went into a huff. How many have ever gone into a huff before? How much huffing was happening at your house on your way to church today? Anybody? Yeah, we know this. We know this from little kids. You know? You have to wear church clothes today. Not going to do this. All right, you can, you know, see how one of my kids is dressed today. And you know, there's a little bit of huffing happened in the Ripper household today, and we acquiesced. Not the hill to die on today. But we also see huffing in some bigger ways, even as grown adults, don't we? Just look at the time of the pandemic. Boy, if they didn't react exactly the way I think they should or say this exactly when and how, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm moving on. You try and calm people down. Just remember the chain reactions this is going to have. How many relationships might be impacted by the social media posts or whatever you're doing? I don't care. I am mad and I like the feeling of being mad. It's been said that people want to be right and they want to be wronged. We like somehow that feeling of being good and angry and let our blood boiling and getting hot under the collar and feeling powerful because I'm so upset. And sometimes when you see people like that, you honestly pray, God, I wish you would just come and talk to them because if you would talk to them, you know, or talk to me, then maybe you would burst through this like force field that we've kind of built up that we're not going to see reality the right way and we're going to overreact. And how can we get people to just cool and calm down and chill out? Well, Cain tries, uh, God tries to do this with Cain. He tries to talk him down from this huff that he's in. So it says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now I'll confess, I think I'm so inundated with social media that when I hear, why are you angry? You know what phrase pops to my mind? You mad, bro? So Richard Sherman, the Seattle Seahawks defensive player, said to Tom Brady in 2012 after he lost, you know, trying to like agitate him, try and instigate, try and push his buttons. And I would say Tom Brady is not the kind of guy whose buttons you normally want to push, maybe at like age 45, but not back in that part, you know, not 10 years ago. And oftentimes I would kind of read that into this passage, you know, is God trying to agitate Cain? I don't think so at all. God desires for Cain to live a with God life. And I believe he's trying to help Cain see something that he might not even be able to recognize in himself. This anger is starting to take over. And so God says next to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you trust me, things are going to go well from you. But if you do not do what is right, if you don't trust me, sin is crouching at your door. Some translations say sin is lurking at your door. Desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What makes being in a huff so dangerous, so deadly, is it starts to invite other temptations to come. It can have kind of a snowball effect of just 
things spiraling out of control. It's lurking at your door. Life is not neutral. We live in a battleground, and when our emotions start to get so heightened, we start to get hot under the collar, sin starts to lurk at our door. Now, notice here, I think there's something very important to distinguish. The key thing that God seems to be saying is not that, hey, you can't be angry at all, but you must rule over that dominant emotion. In other words, it's not wrong to be angry, but it is wrong to allow anger to rule over you. It's not wrong. There's times we see Jesus angry, but we don't allow it to overcome him, for it to control him. And maybe anger isn't the dominant emotion that sometimes can lead you astray, lead me astray. Maybe it's, it's, it's you know, feelings for pleasure or, or for power or some kind of lust, whatever that might be. Do not let that thing rule over you. Because as you disconnect yourself from God and the life-giving resources that are available to you, the consequences can be fatal. Exactly as we see in unfolding in this story. One of the key things I often share with people I first heard from a Christian psychologist is this. You've got to own your emotions. Don't enthrone them. Own your emotions. Don't enthrone them. In other words, don't give them the, the keys to your life. Don't let them drive you. Don't let them take you down the wrong path. You need to be responsible for them. You need to keep them in their proper place. And emotions do have a proper place in our lives. They're good servants as they can tell us uh, things about ourselves that we might not be aware of, but they're really, really bad rulers. And that word own is an acronym that can stand for observing your emotions, welcoming them, and then naming them. And so what God's trying to do here with Cain, I believe, is why are you angry? Observe what you haven't recognized in yourself. He doesn't tell him just to sweep that anger away, not to deal with it. No, don't sweep it under the rug. Sometimes we need to actually welcome the emotions that we're feeling. They're not wrong to feel anger. It's wrong to let it rule over you. Welcome it and then name what it is. And as you explore that emotion of anger, for example, often anger is, is a secondary emotion. The more primary thing that perhaps Cain might be feeling could be shame. I think it's really fascinating at the very end of Genesis 2, before Adam and Eve sinned, and, and sin enters the world, it says they were not ashamed. Which makes me think, one of the causes that perhaps leads us to being in a huff, one of the things that leads us to spiral in the wrong direction, could be a deep-seated underlying shame. Maybe because of something someone has done to us or said about us, mistakes we've made, failures we've had. Maybe the way that we view ourselves, we look at our bodies and we just have shame about it. Shame is why Adam and Eve end up hiding. And so much of the with God life is going from hiding, as we talked about last week, to embracing God's love. And I believe that's what God's trying to do with Cain. I'm drawing near to you. Come near to me. Let yourself cool down. But this is a really, really hard thing for us to do if we haven't intentionally been working to cultivate humility. Because what starts to happen in Cain here is he is trapped in that snare of pride. He doesn't want to see things from any other perspective 
than his own. I've shared this story before with you, but I think it's relevant for today. After our second year of marriage, uh, my wife, who was getting a degree in mental health counseling, and I was getting a pastoral ministry degree, uh, two years into our program, living out in Colorado. And while things were going pretty well overall, we were just finding ourselves bumping into each other a little bit more. Uh, Occasionally, we can be like two rhinos kind of colliding. And so before this starts to get out of control, since we're both learning, you know, professional counseling, I'm learning mental uh, or, you know, pastoral counseling, we should probably talk with someone. So we met with a counselor, and I'll never forget one of the most important things I ever heard. He taught me this idea to recognize when I am emotionally flooded. As he was listening to us going back and forth about who's right, who's wrong, and suddenly the sense of reasonableness that we came with when we started the session kind of dissipated a little bit. Our temperature, the emotional temperature in the room kind of heightened, and he helped us recognize that sometimes when things escalate, Literally, there's adrenaline that's being kind of released that's preventing you from seeing reality, seeing the situation, and from seeing yourself truly and accurately. So he said, when the emotions start to heighten, here's what you need to do. You just need to call a little timeout. Get away from each other for about 30 minutes and then come back. I was like, this just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Am I going to really do this? And it didn't take too long for us to need to institute that timeout in our own marriage called a timeout, and said, all right, plan was I'm going to go down to a, to a coffee shop, and then we'll reconvene for about 30 minutes after that. So it happens. I go down, and I end up seeing some people where I was going, and you know, I'm having some coffee, dialoguing, and that suddenly dawns on me. Holy smokes, I was being an utter jerk to Aaron. Like, totally. I'm, not, I'm acting completely different to these, with these people than I, than I was with her. The emotional flooding kind of went away. I went back, we reconvened, able to work it out. I started with an apology, so did she, and we were able to get on the same page together. And that little trick has kept us from ever having a fight over the last 15 years. Not, not serious, <laughs> not serious. But I tell that story because sometimes we can't recognize the thing that we need to see most. We need to give ourselves a have the humility to believe I might be seeing things from a slanted perspective, from an emotionally flooded place. And so if we need to call a timeout, then I need to yield to that. When might you need to call a timeout? Who might you invite into your life to, give, to have permission to tell you, you might be a little emotionally flooded right now. You might be a little hot under the collar. You might be a little angry. Have the humility to listen, even if it doesn't feel like it's true of you. How I wish Cain would have listened to God's intervention. And here's what happens next. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's really powerful lines that have almost woven their way into daily language. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is actually yes. If you're living a with God life, it means you're living a with others life. God's called us to rule over everything. That means we have responsibility. We're inseparably connected to one another. So what happens to this person in some way ultimately impacts me. So yes, Cain, you actually 
are your brother's keeper. He's your keeper. But as I studied this passage and deciding this is one of the messages we need to preach this year, this line absolutely pierced my heart. Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Injustice has been done. An innocent person has been slain. It made me start to think about what cries are being heard around us now that maybe I just haven't been listening to. This past summer, uh, we took our kids back to Pennsylvania to be watched by grandparents, and we wanted to think, what could we do uh, to make sure we can have some good time together so we don't have to go back to that, you know, counseling, marriage counseling thing, and not always that much fun. No, we just want to have a lot of fun together, invest in our marriage, and so we thought, where's the closest place we could get uh, that if all hell breaks loose back in Pennsylvania, we can come save the day. So we decided to go down to Washington, D.C. and Shenandoah Valley National Park, and it's been a while since I've been through that part of the country. As we're kind of taking some of the back roads, you see Civil War battles and sites all around. It was our first time going to D.C. since college when we were down there as part of the, the March for Life. First time being there since the Capitol riots. And we started to see the city a little bit through the eyes of our kids. If we were going to bring them, what would we want to do with them? And suddenly, some things really start to emerge that I had never really paid attention to there before. I mean, it's right before me, but I didn't maybe feel it. There is so many memorials related to people's blood crying out. So much war. Now, I'm thankful I had family members serve in the Civil War and World War II and Vietnam and Afghanistan. And I am grateful for the men and women who have sacrificed greatly in their families for the freedom that we have as a country. But I also just lament as why has it taken so many wars, so much blood being shed for this to be our reality. Blood cries out. We went to several museums, including the African American History Museum. And it was harrowing to just read about some of the treatments. You know it was true, but to see more of the artifacts, more of the, more of the descriptions of the inhumane ways people were, were treated coming from Africa to America, uh, the slave uh, plantations and, and what was done there. And what even struck me most profoundly was just the awful ways Christian people treated black people. Why is there... African-American churches in America because white churches wouldn't welcome people in. Blood cries out. The blood of the unborn cries out. The blood of the sojourner looking for a home cries out. The blood of innocent victims in mass shootings cries out. There's so many cries. And I believe to live a with God life, we need to live a with others life, which means we need to be listening to these cries, interceding on behalf of others, standing up for those who have been wronged, advocate on behalf of others. How do we do that? And I believe the word that God really put on my heart, at least to begin, it's not the end solution. We need to listen. We need to listen. I'm convinced that a with God life is a listening life. And we need to listen in three key directions. We need to listen to God. 
We need to listen to our soul, our inner life. What are our emotions speaking? We need to listen to the cries of others. And we need to invite others to help us hear. See, when it comes to listening, I think we only listen typically in two of those directions. Many in our world today, they listen to just themselves and what they feel and what they want, and they listen to others, what they feel and what they want. And when we just are listening to ourselves, you know, kind of, I should live my truth, I should do what I want, and, and, and listen to others around us, maybe peer pressure or what they're thinking I should do, we end up with a without God life. And that might work for a little bit, but ultimately, if we're disconnecting ourselves from the source of life, things are going to unravel. So if we listen just to self and to others, that's a without God life. Others of us, interesting, we will listen to God, we'll listen to God, and we'll listen to others, but we don't always listen to ourselves. We might know what God wants is right, we might see where other people are wrong, and so we speak up and we advocate and we, we want to do the right things, but we're often not self-aware of how we're saying what we're saying. We're not often doing an inventory of our own hearts. And so even though we might have a good end, we can often speak and work toward that good end in the wrong ways, utilizing unhealthy means. And so I think if we have a life where we're listening to God and listening to others but not really listening to ourselves, it's a life of emotional unhealth. That's hurtful to us. That's hurtful to others. And that's keeping us from the deeper connection that God would have for us. But there's a third category. We can listen to God and we can listen to ourselves and not listen to others nearly enough. And of those three things, listening to God and listening to self, that's probably where I would default to. When I get things wrong, it's mostly because I'm not listening to others enough. Those closest to me and the cries of those who are hurting the most all over the world and even here in our neighborhoods. When I listen to God, which I do a lot, I, I read, I study, I, I love Scripture. You know, being married to a therapist, I have to pay attention to my inner life quite a bit. Let's make me mad, glad, sad, afraid, or ashamed right now. I listen to myself or I'm going to be in trouble. But sometimes I can spend so much time listening to God and listening to self that I don't pay enough attention to the cries of others. And that's a without others life. If it's, I'm listening to myself and, and listening to others and not God, that's a without God life. If I'm listening to, to God and to others but not to myself, that's a, an emotionally unhealthy life. And if I'm listening to God and I'm listening to myself but not listening enough to the cries of others, that's a without others life. And to live the with God life, we must also live a with others' life as well. We need to listen. We need to listen in all three of these directions. Which of these directions might you need to listen to a little bit more? Your brother's blood cries out. I've asked God many times, how can you allow so much of this to happen? Not only in Genesis 4, but for the thousands upon thousands of years since even right now in our world. And God's never really given me an answer. But I do know that Jesus' blood also cries out. 
His blood cries out. While God hasn't given me an answer, we know that He's given us His Son. Jesus has given us Himself. There's solidarity. There is a way of of entering into our worst human experiences. God can identify. God is the God who hears. And later in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 23-25, the New Testament says this, You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. What does that mean? Abel's blood is crying out for justice, crying out for something to be done. Uh, An innocent person has been wronged. And Jesus is an innocent person who has been wronged. And His blood does not cry out simply for wrongs to be made right. But His blood cries out for us to hear and for us to receive His invitation to reconnect, rejoin, be reconciled to Him once again. Tim Keller summarizes this so beautifully. He says, Jesus is the true and better Abel, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. As Jesus' blood is spilling from His body as He hung on the cross, What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus cries out that we would be forgiven. We would be restored. That that his blood would be our righteousness so that we don't have to live under the burden of shame and guilt and regret and enmity enmity with each other or with God. But that reconciliation can be possible. And if we long for that to be possible in our human relationships, if we want those wedges to become bridges, then we need to come back to God and listen to the cry of Jesus. It's a cry of love. It's a cry of acceptance. It's a cry of forgiveness. It's a cry where He is calling, come to me, those who are weary and burdened. Come to me if you're lost. Come to me if you're weighed down and held back by your guilt and shame and mistakes. Come and be with me to become like me. And let's join in this mission of righting the wrongs of our world, of seeing heaven come to earth here and now. Let's join in this mission of responding to the cries that we need that are being issued because a with God life, it's a with others life. And if we want to live that with others life well, to love well, we need to live life with God. And we need to be people who hear. To be people who hear. So what do you need to hear today? Maybe it's the cries of others. Maybe we just get so wrapped up into our little worlds that we miss out on how others are crying. Maybe we need to pay a little bit more attention to our inner lives. And how might our life be speaking? What might our emotions be telling us? How might we become more mature by becoming more emotionally aware and mature? But most importantly, let's be sure to listen to the cry of Jesus who knows us, who loves us, and gave himself for us so that we might have life and life to the full. 
which is a with God life that's for the good of others. I hope that's the life that you want. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are with us. I thank you for everyone online and even here today at the pond who have leaned in and kind of entered into this tragic story. And this is just one of countless tragic stories that exist of rifts between family members, of innocent blood crying out. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Put an end to this. Stop the cries. But until you come again and we trust you will and we know when you do, every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. We'll be with you. But until that day comes, God, help us to listen to you. Give us the courage to listen to ourselves. Protect us from the evil one who wants to get us in those huffs as sin lurks at our door. And help us to hear the cries of others and to have the courage to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. To have the courage not to cave when it comes to peer pressure. God, help us to live a with others life with you. And if you're here today and perhaps you've not made that commitment to Jesus to live a with God life, know Jesus' blood cries out. He went to that length, to that depth out of his desire to be with you. Simply say, God, I want to receive your love today because of what Christ has done. I want to follow you. Make that your prayer right now. And so God, help us to listen, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Help us to be like you. And it's for God's greater glory we pray all these things and everyone said together, amen.